Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are reading not on the lectionary. We, of course, have started the book of Leviticus together. We did uh, Parshat Vayikra and Parshat Sav. <clears throat> we started uh, and then we did the second Parsha. But we interrupt the lectionary. We interrupt the the reading of the Torah on its weekly cycle because we're in Chag. We are in a, a festival because Passover is eight days or seven days, depending if you're in the land of Israel or are a Reconstructionist or are another type of Jew. If you're a Reconstructionist, you follow what happens in the land of Israel. It's a seven-day Chag. It's a seven-day festival. Um, if you're not Reconstructionist and you're outside the land of Israel, it is an eight-day festival. In any case, whether it's seven days or eight days, by definition, that means Pesach has at least one Shabbat with it. So that Shabbat of Pesach is a special reading. We interrupt our normally scheduled reading and read a reading for uh, Pesach on Shabbat. If Shabbat is one of the one of the days of Yantif, it has its own reading. If Shabbat is Chol Hamoed, meaning the non-Yantif days, the non-holiday days of the holiday festivals, um, then it's this reading that we're doing. So it's plenty confusing, which you know I consider job security. <laughs> so I'm glad it's confusing. I hope you have a hard time figuring it out because then I'm going to have a job um, and be able to uh yeah live in the palisades so we are so we are what's interesting to me in in looking at this reading this is the reading we we do on on other festival uh times as well so it's not just for pesach it's because it closes with the liturgical calendar this reading closes with here's the list of holidays that you are to observe and so that is read on a couple of festivals because those the festivals are the ones that torah cares about right there's lots of holidays that are not in Torah that we celebrate, lots of them from Tu Bishvat to Tisha B'Av to Purim to Hanukkah. None of that's in the Torah. So the, what the Torah cares about are the Shalosh Regalim, the three uh, festivals that we call Chag, right? This is where the Muslim word Hajj comes from, um, the pilgrimage festivals. So Hajj is about pilgrimage based on the word Chag, um, which means festival where you took your stuff and you went to Jerusalem. Um, which is why they all happen on a full moon, by the way. We're on a lunar calendar, of course, for the festivals, rectified by the solar calendar by adding a leap month every so often. Um, but we're on the lunar calendar. So every time you look up in the sky at Pesach, it is the same full moon. It is, it's been really beautiful. It is the full moon of, uh, of April. It is the full moon of Nisan. Um, so it is the same, shut up, Robert Gordon. It is the same uh, full moon every time you look up in the sky at Passover. Um, and same with Sukkot, same with, right, you know, the, every holiday on the Jewish calendar, you look and it's the same moon. Um, so we are, uh, so we're going to read this, uh, we're, but we're not going to start at the liturgical calendar because just not that interesting. <laughs> um, but what happens, um, what I don't think, and I don't, I'd have to look at the calendar to understand exactly why I feel like this year's different, but I feel like we just 
we just analyzed this scene in talking about the golden calf, right? And Moshe goes up to get forgiveness for the people. Um, that's the scene we're at for this Torah reading for right now, for the, for the Shabbat of Cholamoid Pesach. Um, and so we just kind of have been in this real deep exploration as a Torah study community ab- about the building of the Mishkan, the, I mean, instructions and then the golden calf and then, well, all the drama of that and the deep meanings of that and the reverberations of that as they build the Mishkan. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we began uh, Leviticus seeing in the investiture of uh, Aaron and his sons, the priests. So, and now we're back at the scene right after the golden calf. So, um, I don't, I'm not sure I have really felt that, that it's that close before. So again, it might be the calendar, it may just be me. Um, but anyway, so that kind of, it, that determined a little bit about where I felt drawn to go for our Torah study this morning. So, um, so we'll back up a little. The reading begins at 3316. Um, and then we'll, uh, let's see where we're going to start. All right. We'll start at 12, one verse before. So the, the people have, have engaged in the golden calf. Moshe's broken the first set of tablets. There's a plague that breaks out against the people. Um, 3,000 die. It's a horrible thing. Um, then God calls Moshe. Moshe is going to intercede for the people. Um, Moshe successfully intercedes and uh, obtains God's forgiveness. Uh, and God says, carve two tablets, remember, and bring them up here. I made the first set. You make the second set. Um, and so Moshe brings up the second set of tablets. Um, and that is this, that is where we're at right now with Moshe having successfully interceded, um, and now being told to bring up two new tablets so that covenant can be, uh, reinstated. Moshe says to God, see, you say to me, Lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further, you have said, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. Now, if I have truly gained your favor, please pray let me know your ways, that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, I will go in the lead. And will lighten your burden. And he replied, this meaning, Moshe, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us, so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth? And God said to Moshe, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. And Moshe is, you could read this however you want, but some read it, he is completely overcome and has this incredible desire for his own religious experience, his own experience of God. Shifting, Zornberg suggests, from his role as intercessor to now being Moses himself, wanting something from God personally. And what does, what does he ask? Let me behold your presence, right? Let me behold your kavod. And God answers, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Yudhe Vavhe and the grace that I gracify 
and the compassion that I compassionate. Continuing, but you cannot see my face for a human being may not see me and live. And God said, see, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock. And as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my achorai, my achar, my after. But my face must not be seen. God said to Moshe, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you shattered. Be ready by morning, and in the morning come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one else shall come up with you, and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of the mountain. So Moses carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning, if you're going to do something important, Torah has you do it early in the morning. There's a verb for getting up early in the morning. Um, and that is the verb used here of uh, Moshe. It's used of Avraham when he is supposed to take Yitzchak, right, and set out. Um, they wake up early in the morning. I think there should be a verb for what it means to get up torturously early. Like there should be a special word. It's not just getting up. Right. It's not just waking up. It's not just, OK, the alarm went off and now I've been woken up there. There should be a very specific word for the horrors of what it means to get up super early. OK. Is it obvious I'm a night person? So he carved two tablets of stone early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai as God had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him. God came down in a cloud and stood with him there, proclaiming the name Yudhe Yudhe passed before him and proclaimed, Yudhe Yudhe a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children upon the third and fourth generations. Moses hastened to bow low to the ground in homage and said, if I have gained your favor, O God, pray, let God go in our midst, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your own. God said, I hereby make a covenant before all your people. I will work such wonders as have not been wrought on all the earth or in any nation. And all the people who are with you shall see how awesome are Yudhevave's deeds, which I will perform for you. Then we go on to say, watch out for the people that you're going to go be among. Do not make covenants with them. Don't marry their women because you know what that leads to. And like, you know, knock it off. Um that the firstborn all belong to God. We get the commandment for Shabbat, which comes before the commandment for the rest of the festival times, which you see here. Um, I will drive out nations from your path. Didn't happen. And so Moshe comes down. Uh, and this is where we have uh, his face, right, is is radiant and is all aglow. So Moshe's asking, essentially, like, you've said lead the people forward, but I need some assurances that we're going to be okay. 
And I need some assurances that everybody we march through is going to know that we're protected because otherwise we are incredibly vulnerable, right? This is not an army. I mean, they have people of fighting age. This is not an army. These are refugees, essentially. It's a nation of refugees. And so to move that through territory that is not yours is always extremely dangerous. Yes. Isn't it sort of hypocritical of God to... Hypocritical to, of God? Oh, here to, we go. Okay. <laughs> to say in one line, in say that I will, um, I'm compassionate and so forth, and I will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then on the other hand, visit the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children, et cetera, upon all the so, generations to follow. Right. So, um, so you're pointing to, so Betsy's already gone ahead to the verses that are about, uh, the 13 attributes. Um, so we're going to get there. All right. So M- Moshe wants some assurances or he's, a, or he's saying, I, I do, you know, otherwise I don't, I don't, how do you expect me to do this? Right. Um, where am I? So God says, okay, I'm going to go in the lead. I'm going to take care of this, not to worry. And so, you know, Moshe being the good Jew that he is says, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I now feel so much better. Is that, is that how Moshe answers as a good Jewish character? Uh, no. Moshe answers, see that you do. <laughs> right. Um, cause if you don't, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you better, because if you don't, essentially, we're not going. Is that one of the origins of the word chutzpah? Yeah, this is one of the places. Yes. That we get the origin of the word chutzpah. Um, unless you go in the lead, don't make us leave. Right. Because how how will we be safe? God says, all right, already. I said I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And yes, you've gained my favor. Moshe, it's all good. I love you. Remember, we talked about this relationship, this special relationship between Moshe and God. Now that Moshe is not going to be the head of the cult, right? That that's this different kind of relationship that easily could have been him needing to back up. And Aaron would be the big guy now, the big kahuna. That's where that comes from, by the way. Kahuna comes from Kohen. <laughs> Seriously, kahuna, the big kahuna comes from Kohen. He's the Kohen. So he's the big kahuna, literally. And so... um that could mean what was happening, but we looked a few weeks ago and, and actually it's a very intimate, different kind of relationship Moshe is now going to have with God. And Moshe seems overcome and completely abandons his role as like the ambassador for the people, the leader of the people, and like has this like moment, which Zorenberg pointed out. I don't know that I would have seen it that way, but she's right. Like all of a sudden out of nowhere, he's like, Please let me behold your kavod. Like he's been whining for this reassurance that he's been favored, that he's been singled out. Maybe because he knows he's Aaron's going to take, I don't know. But all of a sudden he like has this like burst out of longing and says, let me behold your presence. <laughs> and God answers, I'm going to make all of my tov, kol tuvi, all of my tov to pass before you. And I will proclaim before you the name yod heh vav and the grace that I, the verb of grace, and the compassion that I, the verb of compassion, right? I don't love grant. I don't love 
show like these that that's not the language the language is the grace that i graceify and the compassion that, that i compassionify um so the verbs of those nouns right what what kind of an answer is this to moshe's request what what like what, what this is this is not what moshe asked for moshe said let me behold your kavod and god says I'll make all my tov pass before you and I'll proclaim the name Yudhevafe and the grace that I graceify and the compassion that I compassionate. What, what kind of an answer is that? If you interpret kavod as importance or weight or heaviness or significance, at least to me, it makes a little bit more sense. Beautiful. So, uh, Bert is suggesting don't read kavod as your presence or your glory, rather read kavod as respect from the word kaved, heavy, weighty. If that's what we're talking about, then God's answer makes a little more sense. I agree with Bert. If we read it as show me your importance in the world, your weightiness in the world, then it might make some sense that God says, well, what that's about then is all of my goodness in the world, right? And my name, yud heh is important here. Because remember, this is not a proper name. This is not Tim. God's name is not Jonathan, right? God's, God's name is a form of identification of something about the essence of the divine. yud heh Hava. It's about being. The future tense, the past tense, and the present tense, all in this jumble of yuds and hays and vavs. So something about isness, wasness, will be-ness, and we get this right in another uh, part of Torah, yeah, share, yeah, I will be that which I will be. Um, and so that makes a little more sense, right? That that's the essence of who I am and the importance of me in the world, says God, and the great, and something about grace, something about pain unearned good stuff same with rachamim rachamim from rechem womb what we feel for the issue of the womb meaning undeserved good stuff children could never deserve what we feel for them they could never earn that they could never earn by what they do or say or who they are in the world our willingness to throw ourselves in front of a train for them that's unearned that is the, the definition of rachamim, of compassion. This seems to be what God understands as an answer to Moshe's request. The glory and the grace translations, which have always bothered me, that I'm sure that goes back to the King James Bible and to really a Christian translation into English as mm-hmm. opposed to the sense of the Hebrew words. Right. And that's why I, I don't like glory, glory, glory. Not that I have a problem with glory or glory of God, but it just, it, it rings of a whole different feeling. Yes. The translations have been used in other contexts that then make us as English speakers very sensitive to the sound of those words. I completely agree. I have been able to reconstruct grace. Um, glory, not as, not so much. Um, but grace, I really have been able to Jewify again. For me, um, because there's not a great English translation 
other, you know, for grace that unless y'all want to come up with one, I'm very open to exploring what you'd like to substitute um, for grace. But it, um, but yes, I totally agree that it, it's a struggle for us given uh, having grown up in a Christian context. Um, so God is clear about one thing that God understands that Moshe asked for a visual revelation. And God says, you cannot see my face for an Adam, an earthling cannot see me and live. And God says, here's a place by me, station yourself in this cleft in the rock. And as my presence passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my achar, but my face must not be seen. So we've talked a lot about this in the past. I don't want to spend too much time on the interpretation um, of this part of it. Um, you've heard me say before that if we were to confront the full totality of the divine, we would cease to be human. That I'm not sure it means you die. I think it could mean, like for those of us who are sci-fi fans, that you ascend, that you become something other than a human being living a human life. It would just be too much for you to high, for you to live a human existence. It would be by definition something else. And that's not your job, Moshe. Your job is to live your life. Even though you want more than anything to see me, I am not willing to alter you in such a way that you are no longer living a human life. I think that is a very important message that gets missed a lot about Torah. The whole foundation, bless you, of Judaism and of what it means to unite with divinity is, for me, a lot of the point of it is here. The goal is not for you to unite with divinity in a way that pulls you out of a normal human life. That is not a Jewish goal. God says so. God says, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah, I could do that. It doesn't say I can't do that. But if I do that, I will alter your trajectory in a way that I don't want to. I don't want to do that. That's not the purpose. That is not a goal. Um, and I think that is an important teaching um, of our tradition. You're supposed to live your life. You're supposed to have God inform that and work through that. We're not to abandon it to go seek a, a better, closer experience of the divine. I just love that. Okay. So, um, all right. So, so where are we going to dig in, Rabbi Amy, if we're not going to dig into exactly that sentence? So I wanted to go back to this kind of business of, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim, right? My, like, what, like this kind of odd answer, right? And, and Moshe's request. So let's look. We're going to look a little bit at Zornberg and we're going to look at the Mafarshim because we, we have our own interpretation. You've heard me do it. Those of you who have learned with me, if you haven't, now you have. Um, then, but I don't think we've ever looked at the Mephorshim. I don't think we've ever looked at the traditional commentaries, any of them on this, oddly enough. And I've been teaching here for 13 years. So I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but so we're going to look at a little bit of traditional commentary and a little bit of Zornberg, who brings, as you know, lots of Midrash to always the conversation. So we, we just read all of this, right? And I'm going to shield you. This is a loving act by God, shielding Moshe 
from too intense an experience of God's self. This is a loving act. Like you've heard me tell stories about feeling like I did this with Eliana when she was little, shielding her out of love from the full confrontation with who I can be, right? That is a loving act that we shield people from the fullness of who we are sometimes, right? To protect them, to preserve them. Um, okay. So I, whoever wrote this is a parent. So the statement about shielding the child from the fullness of the parent in a way that sounds maybe there's some negativity about the parent to me sort of asks, begs the question of like, isn't the parent who is so full also deserving of being shielded? You know, like this, it sounded there. I mean, we could probably unpack this over several years, but <laughs> there was an element of sort of badness or, or hiding and, and, you know, I don't know. It just it, so, it struck a nerve in me. me. Say- I had a marmoset response. I went, oh my goodness, when you said that. So, um, so if how about if I substitute the word intensity? Yeah. Right. That that we need to shield our children from the intensity of the fullness of who we are, both in our loving of them, moments I'm frustrated, moments I'm just having a bad day, and don't need to bring the fullness of who that is into into her life. I also was always and have always been and I'm still aware of not wanting to put too much on her of how much I love her. Like it there's a there's a level at which the intensity of that is not good for her. Like I need to deal with that. I and I deserve protection also and we could have a whole field day here with the psychoanalysts in the room um because there's a bunch of them. Um but I but I think that's my job my job is to take the adult self that I am in my finer adult responsible moments and she shields me right from that's her job. And we turn to other mature responsible adults that we trust to shield us. And sometimes I turn to the Holy one, right. For shielding. Do you want to say something, Mark? Well, just, just thinking that I think a lot of this, becomes much more comprehensible in human terms uh, if it's understood. And I think it, it uh, sort of cries out to be understood in this way as the child's development of, of a parent. When the child, uh, the child moves from the symbiosis, the early symbiosis with mother and begins to be able to differentiate itself from an external object, and then seeds omnipotence to that object for protection, the child essentially develops a parent for itself. And I think that this really is a a reflection of that process. And what's interesting is it's God who's acknowledging it. It's God who's saying, this is what needs to happen, not Moshe. Moshe's just crying out, let me be intimately unified with you. In a different way, which is, which is like what I hear you saying is the immature, you know, the beginning and that, that to move past that is, is part of the goal. And God seems to say, yeah, can't, can't, no, no, not going to happen. The loss of that differentiation once it's achieved is a loss of individuation. It's psychic death. Right. Does Moshe understand fully what God is saying to him? That, that would be, I would love to see you write that scene. Like Moshe's internal dialogue in response. We don't have it. We, we don't know. Like we don't know. 
what we know is that he has no choice but to accept what God is willing to do or not do. We have no idea if Moshe gets it. And like our children, Moshe has to learn to understand it and to realize it and act accordingly. Right. Okay. This is the point, says Aviva Zornberg, where the narrative digresses, apparently, from the agenda of national forgiveness and renewal to the private mystical concerns of Moses. God's face and God's back become literalized in a way that even the revelation at Mount Sinai has not approached. God's hand will cover Moses' face and will uncover it. And Moshe will see one part of God, but not the other. So Zornberg is saying, A, this is a shift from the national agenda to Moshe's private desire for experience of God. That's number one. Number two, this is radical anthropomorphizing of God that we didn't even see at Sinai where God appeared. This is even more than that. God has a a face and a back and a hand. Like this is seriously anthropomorphic. Um, so let's, so let's look at like, what did the Mephorshim do with this? We've talked about it. Oh, it's all metaphor, but, but let's look at the Mephorshim. What did they do? So this is Talmud and Rosh Hashanah, uh, Rosh Hashanah 17. The verse states, and yud he passed by before him and proclaimed. Rabbi Yochanan said, were it not written in the verse, it would be impossible to say this. What is what is what is he saying? What is Rabbi Yochanan saying? Had it not been written in Torah, you would not dare to say this. You would not dare to suggest this. But it's in Torah. Torah is written for these folks by whom? Who's Torah written by? God. God. You could not say this without being zapped by lightning from out of the sky, but. God said it. Okay. The verse teaches that the Holy One, blessed be God, wrapped God's self in a prayer shawl like a prayer leader and showed Moshe the order of prayer. God said to him, whenever the Jewish people sin, let them act before me in accordance with this order and I will forgive them. Hence, we recite the 13 attributes on Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right? Because the Talmud suggests, of course, God's not, it's like God's hand or God's back. That's just silly. That's just silly. Who would believe that? That's just silly. What it means is God put on a talus. <laughs> and what Moshe saw, right, was the order of tefillah that God was ordaining on Sinai, because of course that all got ordained on Sinai too. There was the oral Torah as well, as well as the written Torah for the rabbis. These guys don't have sacrifice. These guys don't have mountains to climb. These guys have tefillah. They have prayer. That's, that's their relationship with the divine. So what did God show Moshe in this moment? God put, wraps God's self in a talus, of course, because it's time to pray. And God shows Moshe the order of prayer. And that's what the 13 attributes is. It's kind of instructions when they mess up again, because that's for sure going to happen. When they mess up, here's what you say. Say this, have them say this. And just like this time, they will be forgiven. 
Beautiful. It's a beautiful interpretation of what just happened. This is instruction for all time. It's not a one-off event. God is, is showing Moshe a cheat sheet. If you want my forgiveness, shh, here's the secret code. That's what this is doing here, the 13 attributes. Say this, and just like this time, they'll be forgiven. It's kind of a, it's my Achilles heel. It's my kryptonite. God is showing Moshe out of love for the Jewish people, out of deep love for the Jewish people, God is showing Moshe how they can kryptonite God whenever they mess up and deserve to be wiped out again. Right? George, you okay? You sure? Whoa. One of the fascinating things is that God is not saying, I saved you once. Don't you remember all the power of the 10 plagues? And it's like a parent saying, I raised you, uh, you know, we're a kid and fed you. Uh, and that's, that's why you owe me. And God is not saying that. He's mm-hmm. looking just at the present and not uh, using the past, even though he showed power in the past. Right. And the Talmud is saying this is actually about their future relationship. I'm going to show you how you can get me to say, okay. Right. Cause that's what a loving parent does is kind of tip their hand. If you really want to go, here's how you can get me to say yes. Right. And it's significant as to what God says first. Cause God could have said, Adonai, Adonai, super powerful, punishing. To George's point, oh, the know. one who brought the plagues. I'm right. the, this is who I am. This is the essence of who I am. That is not what is revealed it's, it's to Moshe. Right. And it relates to the womb. Right. To the womb, to compassion. Yes, compassion. Rahum. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but I also want to say there's another, I thought I put it in here. I don't know if I did. Maybe we'll see. Um, but there's one where it says, don't be silly. God doesn't have a back. What did Moshe see? Don't be silly. What Moshe saw was the knot on the back of God's tefillin. That's what Moshe saw. The knot that's on the back of God's tefillin that is around God's head. Silly people. <laughs> right? So we have God. God shows the, the order of prayer and wearing a talus. Right? And that's what Moshe saw. The other one is, is Moshe saw the knot at the back of God's uh, head um, from tefillin. One is only able, says the Chatam Sofer, one is only able to recognize God's ways and God's behavior after the fact. We've talked about this. So I did not realize how far back this goes. This goes back all the way to the Chatam Sofer, the 13th century. Only after time has passed and it is possible to link together all the facts can one understand a little of the way God acts. At the time itself, we cannot understand God's deeds, and we stand amazed. Thus, you will see my back. After some time has passed, you will understand my actions, but my face will not be seen. At the time of the events themselves, you will not see me. We, we've loved this interpretation for a long time in this room, right? That um, often it's, you know, what God is saying is it's not my back that you're going to see. Chas v'shalom. God forbid, what you're going to see is my wake, the my afterward, what my coming through here causes. 
And often it is that we don't really understand the ways of the mystery of at the heart of reality and how that works in our lives until looking back. Most of the time we don't see it when it's happening. It's when we look back that we're like, oh, right. There it is. Now, I'm not saying things happen for a reason. That's not what I'm suggesting. You know me better than that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we often cannot make meaning. And for me, that is, you know, the essence of what the divine in our lives is. We can't make meaning out of stuff when it's happening. There's just too much going on. We're too caught up. That's just who we are. That's not a criticism. That's just who we are as human beings. Where do we find meaning? In the events of our lives, it's when we look back at them. That is when we make meaning out of what has happened to us. And I think that's what um, the Khatam Sofer is saying. I once read a metaphor for this, that we can't see electricity, but we can see. But that's you can't see electricity at all. Right. You can't see it at all. And we're going to get to Eisenstein. But you can see light. You can see light. You can see light. So we're going to, Eisenstein is going to say something similar. Ira Eisenstein. All right. He's Kuni. And you will see my behind. You will see an aura of light which will linger after my essence has passed. The light which precedes me and which is too dazzling, you will not see. I love this. This is old stuff, people. How beautiful is this? You can only see the light that is in your life when I've moved through it. The light that precedes me would like, would obliterate you. If we saw it coming, think about that, right? People say to me, did you always know you wanted to be a rabbi? Like, what? If I have seen that coming, I don't know what would have happened to me. If, if you had told me when I was 10 that I was going to be a rabbi, like what? There's just stuff that's just too blinding, too brilliant, too like earth shattering for who we are before it happens. It has to happen first. Then we can hold it and, and deal with the light that it is in our lives. But if we tried the other, we aren't the person yet who can hold it because it hasn't happened to us yet. Does that make sense? I have to be the person who chose to become a rabbi before I can deal with the fact that, oh my God, I'm going to be a rabbi. Like, right. I, I can't handle that at 12. That the 12 year old can't handle that, right? That, the light of it before it happens is way, way too disorienting for us to to continue normally. We can only see that light after it's moved through our lives. I love that. Betsy? It's it it seems like it's kind of similar to how you don't really appreciate the effect that your parents had on you until mm-hmm. after they're gone or after it happens. Like you, you know, like I wrote an article once about how it's amazing how um, my mom got so smart all of a sudden. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. know, she wasn't an idiot. When you turned a certain age, she was yeah, no longer an idiot. All of a sudden she was smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, right. So that it's a beautiful example of the ways that we can't really make meaning and see clearly or fully the effect someone's had on, on our lives until later. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Parents and children. That is a great. And I think the parent child metaphor is a really apt one for you know, the divine Moshe stories, Leora to woo woo, (laughs) but like in the age of psychedelics and psilocybin and people describing sort of having a very different experience of the world after having used the ayahuasca or whatever, I don't even know, but these types of 
mind altering substances that they are they have a different appreciation for the beauty of of the world of the chair of the flower of whatever and it also leads me to think about um the limits of our language or the the framework with which we see our world we don't even have the language or the capacity to comprehend the greatness of um of god or of miracles or of how this how everything is moving beautifully said beautifully said thank you for that yes um Right. So do, doing those drugs is almost like you get a little taste of that four light that we can't handle. Right. That if we walked around like that all the time, we would not function very well. But once you have that insight, it's hard to forget it. Having done psilocybin in college, I can tell you, um, you do not forget it. Once you have that insight, you never unsee that possibility of uncovering the, the yumminess under everything like yeah just saying um okay but they, but it's interesting because they're they're now using it for healing ptsd and all kinds of things as gu- unguided trips like because there are limits to like you said both language and limits to how our brains work that they just are open to things differently you know with things like psilocybin so and so with these guided trips like people are really experiencing deep and profound healing including people who are dying Okay. Oh, here it is. I did put it in here. And I will remove my hand and you will see my back. This is from Brachot, the Talmud. Rab Hana Barbizna said in the name of Rabbi Shimon Hasida. Remember, we always teach in the name of our teacher. The expression, you will see my back, should be understood as follows. This teaches that the KBH, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be God, who was mentioned above, wears tefillin. And God showed him the knot of the tefillin of his head, which is worn on the back of the head. Okay just in case you doubted that it was in there. So Rabbi Hanan Morrison, uh, based on the Midrash we just read about the, the back of the tefillin, says there are two levels of knowledge. The first is an accurate knowledge of an object's true nature. The second is a limited knowledge, restricted by our intellectual or physical limitations. Regarding tangible objects, there may not be a significant difference between the two levels of knowledge. But when dealing with abstract concepts, especially with regard to the nature of God, the difference will be great, perhaps infinitely so. The imagery of God's face and back corresponds to these two levels of knowledge. This is all based on Harav Cook, by the way. Um, God's face and back correspond. So don't read face and back. Instead, read one kind of knowledge and another kind of knowledge. Face in Hebrew is panim. Similar to the word pnim, meaning inner essence. True knowledge of God's infinite reality is God's pnim, God's face. Inner, pnim is inner. Panim is face. The Rav Cook is making a, a, a correlation between those two, panim and pnim. Knowledge of God's reality, according to our limited understanding, on the other hand, is referred to as God's back. Moses was granted this partial indirect knowledge, a grasp of the divine that we are able to appreciate and apply in our finite world. That's what Moshe was granted. You can't see God's face, Rob Cook is saying. You cannot fully understand, have the kind of knowledge of God that you would have of a water bottle. You just can't. All Moshe could achieve was the other kind of knowledge of God which is referred to as the back, um, that knowledge that is like just a hint at, you know, what God might mean in our world. 
Yes? Okay. I have to chew on that for a while. But So then Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt, the Velveteen Rabbi, is commenting on Rabbi Hanan Morrison when she writes, Jewish tradition interprets these verses the way we interpret all anthropomorphic descriptions of God in Torah as metaphor. God doesn't really have a face nor a hand with which to shelter Moshe in the cleft of the rock, nor a back, which Moshe might glimpse as God departs. These are human conceptions. We can't wrap our minds around the reality of what God is, so we mentally create God in an image we can understand. I can relate to Moshe's request, she's saying. It makes sense to me that he yearned for this kind of encounter. He wanted to encounter God panim al panim, face to face, presence to presence. He wanted a radical I-thou connection with God, and who can blame him? Instead, what he gets is a partial glimpse of a totality too great for him to comprehend. Moshe can't grasp the wholeness of God from within the limited perspective of a single human mind. If he were to encounter all of what God is, his individual selfhood would disappear. The orderly limits of his mind would shatter. God gives Moshe only what he can handle. He can see God's goodness. He can listen to the recitation of one of God's names, which contains compassion and mercy, along with remembrance of our misdeeds. And he can glimpse something of the divine presence as it passes him by. I don't think this passage is only about Moshe. I think it speaks to us too. Where can we see God's goodness manifest? What are the names of God which we receive on the frequencies to which we are attuned? What after image of God's presence, as it were, are we able to perceive in the world around us? Beautiful, Betsy, I haven't forgotten you. So Rabbi Ira Eisenstein, who's one of the founding rabbis of Reconstructionism, Mordechai Kaplan's son-in-law, says, we cannot actually picture goodness. It is not a being, to Bert's point. It is a force like electricity. Nobody ever actually saw electricity, but we can see and feel what electricity does. If we have an electric heater and connect it, we get heat. We get to know what electricity is by what it does. In the same way, we get to know what God is by what God makes us do. See the reconstructionist flip there? Did you see that? Right? Very reconstructionist. In the same way, we get to know what God is by what we do when we draw on the electric energy called God. When people are, so to speak, connected with God, they do good things. We call those people godly people and their acts godly acts. Whenever this force is active, we say that God has exercised influence and power. So for a good, true, holy roller reconstructionist, we don't mean God exercises influence and power. God forbid. What we mean is we access God. That is how God has influence and power in the world when human beings access that which we associate with godliness. That is a holy roller. I love it. Reconstructionist understanding. Love that. All right. Um, so, okay. Before we end, I'm going to go to Betsy's point. Okay. So Betsy asks, how can God both be forgiving and all this yumminess? And then you say, but visits iniquity on right, to the second and third generation. Because there are theologies in the ancient world that said it was for the thousand, you know, for a really long time, like the thousandth generation. So this was actually a mitigation of that theology that said, you'll you'll never dig your way out of this. Think about Amalek, like how we feel about Amalek. Like you can't, Amalek can never undo. No descendant of Amalek can ever be other than Amalek. 
an Amalekite. Like, like they can't undo that. They can't undo the sin that their ancestors perpetrated on the Israelite vulnerable marching through the desert. That was a very understood and well entrenched idea in the ancient world. This is coming to say, I'm not like that. But there is collective responsibility. Climate change, our grandchildren are going to be punished for our sins. They they are going to be living with the consequences of what we've done. That is reality. So Torah's trying to mitigate the perception of there is, you give up all hope. <laughs> like it's, there's no hope. But there is a collective responsibility. And still within that, I am going to be merciful and, right, and gracify. So hang in there. They are, to say two, third times. to the third and fourth is. Yeah, I was going to say to third and fourth is not to the thousand. Okay, correct. One That's thing, different. One thing is what we do in our sins as individuals also affect our children and grandchildren and affect their lives. Correct. And grandchildren. Correct. And the other point is that there are two not conflicting but two poles within the Jewish idea of God. One is judgment. And the other is compassion. Okay. And there's an issue of the balance between the two. And part of what this says is the balance is tilted a little bit towards compassion and a little bit less towards judgment, but they're both still there. Beautifully said. You can't have only grace and forgiveness with no judgment. And no, and no responsibility. And no responsibility. And I think traditionally that the idea of Compassion is associated with the name, excuse me, fusing this Adonai, and Elohim is associated with justice. Correct. Yudhevavhe is compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. Yudhe so Dean and Rachamim. The rabbis have Dean and Rachamim. That there's and and our goal on High Holidays is to move God off God's throne of Dean, judgment, and move God onto the Kiseya Rachamim, onto the throne of Rachamim. And this is saying the game is rigged. Israel, the game is rigged in your behalf. And in the Shema, which of those words is there twice and which is there once? In terms of what? Which words? Dina Racha. Uh, Yudhe Vavhe and Eloheinu. <laughs> okay, we say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Adonai, which is the, the, the forgiveness part, is there twice, but not without Eloheinu which is our judge. All right. So Bert bringing Another. forward a beautiful interpretation of tefillah, of what got revealed to Moshe. And one of those had to be, of course, the Shema, <laughs> where we get told to wear them on our hands and right between our eyes. All right. So um, I love this by Zornberg. Um, I love this. I never thought about this. So we read that Moshe bows low to the ground, right? Immediately after this, Encounter with God, this new intimacy. Moshe falls to the ground and says, if I've gained your favor, oh God, pray, let you get, let God go in our midst. Even though this is a stiff necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your own. Zornberg notes, the question of structure emerges with compelling force. How does Moses's desire for personal mystical revelation mesh with the narrative of national sin and forgiveness? It is remarkable that while he speaks in the first person singular, when he asks for the vision of God's glory, he modulates to the first person plural in verse nine. 
If I have gained your favor, let God go in our midst. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your own. I love this. At the culmination of Moses's work of prayer, he identifies with the sin of the people. Quietly, undramatically, the pronouns change. The fire in his bones is by this point so thoroughly integrated that it sparks out unselfconsciously in his syntax. He speaks with a quiet normalcy that seems to emerge seamlessly from the vision he has just experienced. I love she's saying it's causative. This shift in pronouns was caused by the revelation. His reference to our sin is set in high relief against his earlier pronouns, reproaching the people. He used the rhetoric of you, I, right? You have sinned. I shall go up. I shall atone for your sin. Pleading with God, he spoke of this people, their sin. Erase me if you're going to punish them, right? It is only in the prayer that leads to the vision of the cave and to God's final forgiveness that Moses begins to modulate from I to we. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. God's reply still focuses on Moses' personal grace as the reason for God's favor. Only after the revelation of the cave does Moshe make the last movement to full solidarity with the people, pardon our iniquity and our sin. I think this is beautiful. I think this is incredibly beautiful that Moshe has been speaking. I, you you know, I, it, you know, they all go up. You stay here. Y'all messed up. I'm mad at you. God's mad at you. I'm going to talk to God. God's like this whole, I didn't do it. Y'all did it. And this very split kind of understanding until he has this revelation. When he has this revelation about grace and mercy and something about the intimate Knowledge of God's goodness, Moshe changes. Something, Zornberg suggests, it fills him to his bones. And it changes him into someone who understands it's not I, it, it's I, thou. It is we. It is us. To stop splitting off, right, what? He doesn't like, doesn't want, needs to forgive what his, what his rationale is, what his job is, what his role is. All of it disappears and he understands the collective. He understands it's all we. This, I think, is a critical teaching for this moment in our history. When are we or what is it going to take for us to have this kind of revelation that if we keep saying, I'm only drilling a hole under my seat on the boat. We're all going under. When are we going to get it? When are we going to knock it off? It's a real question. Like, I, I think this is a beautiful interpretation that what will it take for what, what will affect this change for us? Right? Them. It's their fault. They're wrong. It's because of them. And I'm there too. I'm not suggesting I'm any different. I, I truly wonder what is it that's finally going to like zap us. And give us such an overwhelming understanding that as hard and as awful as it is, it is not them. It's all of us. Right? Like, I don't know. This was just really powerful, this teaching from Zornberg for me. 
uh, today was really powerful. I will close with this poem that I love um, to this theme, uh, Yehuda Amichai from Open, Closed, Open. Uh, Barry, are you willing to unmute and read it for us in Hebrew? עקבות רגילי ציפורים בחול אשר על שפת הים, כמו כתב יד שמישהו רשם לזכור דברים, שמות, מספרים ומקומות. עקבות ציפורים בכל הלילה נשארות גם ביום, אבל לא ראיתי את הציפור שהטביע אותן. כך האלוהים. who made lists to remember things, names, numbers, and places. Birds' footprints in the sand at night still remain by day, but I don't see the bird that imprinted them. It's like that with God. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org